Hello, welcome to another episode of No Tags Podcast with me, Chal Ravens, and myself, Tom Lee. Hello. How are Hello. you doing, Tom? Yeah, I'm good. I'm a bit hungover, actually. I was out last night. But you were also up very early, weren't you? I was, right. Oh, with the boys. God. Yeah. Well, I was I was out <laughs> with the boys, well, and Elle. But um, yeah, uh, we were at my favourite, well, one of my favourite bars in Deptford, Little Faith, which is great. But I mean, we've fallen victim to this before. Those like 6% hipster beers, they're just silent <laughs> assassins. You have four pints and just lose the ability to speak. Um, I'm actually just laughing about the memory of you falling over in debt for that time now. Oh, that, that was, was cocktails, actually. That to be was. Fair. That was at Little Nans. That was Little Nans, and I went Leg- legendary, oh, weird, 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 yeah, gap weird spot. In, in Still there. Yeah, I told you this right what? afterwards. I woke up and there was just like blood yeah. all over my bed, and I had to go get my chin stitched yes. at the Mass Bill. It didn't seem that bad at the time, but you were no, there, and didn't. then you just weren't there, and I turned around and you were on the floor in yeah, Newcross Road. But um, that wasn't really what I was referring to. I really wanted to get out from you what you got up early to do this morning. Actually, listen, me and the boys <laughs> were at the driving range. I feel like there's something about like only people who've grown up in a city would have the fucking urge to play golf. To me, it's just like as a small child, I got literally dragged. I had to follow my dad around golf courses while he played. Oh, so I, I never had that. Else to, yeah, like, I never out. had that. To, it, it, I'm no, it, no, no, and no. Although I'm, I did have a few lessons once. Did you? Yeah, when I was like ten. I've still not had lessons. I'm very much freestyling it. But oh, really? I will say today, hungover on about six hours sleep. Best I've ever played. Honest, honest to God. Best <laughs> it's I've also ever played. a kind of like retired rapper thing, isn't it, for you, I feel. I don't know. There's something about like getting, or like retired yeah, footballer, you know, know you like mean. over 35 uh, golf It habits. feels very over 35. <laughs> you know what, though? It's funny. <laughs> it you're talking about... club med driving range. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, or maybe it's like Charlie Sloth's IB for residency <laughs> driving range. It's funny you talk about having to follow your dad around as well, because there are definitely, and I find this bizarre, especially this early, there are definitely like golf wags that like it will just be what like what do they do they just sit what like, so they've got up early they've got up early have, to they, do, have, they, com- have they put a face on no no I don't mean wag in that sense I oh. just mean I just mean beleaguered partners who oh, have got okay. up early to be dragged to the driving range with their significant other and they've then been, just like they've been promised something else after surely golf. surely they're gonna go see Mamma Mia they're, they're going to the range pick up yeah. a throw but I'm just like just 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 let, let, let your partner have a lie in. <laughs> yeah, or let her maybe, I don't know, play golf with you. Is that yeah, like... yeah, it's bizarre. Anyway. <laughs> um, what are we doing on this uh, show, Tom? We are talking to The Large. The Large. Okay. This was your idea, I believe. Yeah, the this was my idea. I've, I've known Suze a while. Um, she is, where to start? She is someone who very much did her time in the, the trenches of kind of alibi era Dalston clubbing. Um, she was blogging pretty heavy around that period, putting on club nights, generally just a fixture in London. And I would also say, look, I'm not going to say her nights were the only nights on that strip playing dance hall. That's not true. But definitely I would say in this kind of loose scene we all inhabit, um, her and like, you know, some of her contemporaries like Hips Don't Dance were definitely ahead of their time in terms of leaning very heavily on dance hall Afrobeats stuff like that um but then her career really took off when she moved to new york she became label manager of mix pack um definitely like you know a really significant label both of that era but also generally in terms of like you know releasing dancehall music to a you know a western predominantly us and uk audience um you know they released vibes cartels kingston story album 
And then they released um, Pop Can's two albums for that era, which I'd say are both, you know, established Monday classics at this mm. point. She was super instrumental in both of them, project managed both. Um, and was also very instrumental to uh, what was probably Nick's Pack's crowning glory of that era, which was when they won the Red Bull Culture Clash in 2016. Yes, which she's got some good stories She's about. got some really, <laughs> really good stories about that. And I think Suze is also quite quite uh, emblematic of a certain type of person that we want to speak to on this podcast, which is this um, behind-the-scenes operator who you know continues to operate yeah. and therefore has seen a lot of the like really quite dramatic shifts that we've lived through even in mm. our time in, in music in terms of the the technology, things about distribution, what kind of platforms you engage with, how you would actually sell a record to people, how you find an audience. She's seen so yeah. many of these changes. Well, and um, especially having to sell Jamaican artists to the US, you right, know, like comes with its whole other challenges. Into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, that's a, a yeah. brief introduction. Yeah, to, to I think life. she's also just, she's... Super informed, super smart. She also has a great newsletter called Sound and Vision, um, which I think we, we, you know, we recommend you subscribe to. And we also found out that I had a weird, like, parallel academic yes, career to her, you do. which is quite odd. You yeah. had a kind of like Ed Norton, Brad Pitt fight club thing going on. <laughs> um, we came to that. Um, what else do we talk about? She's not that large. No. Yeah, big news. She's not that large. No. Petite, if anything. I would say smaller than yeah, average. Smaller than the average. Hard to tell on Zoom, but I'd say a little bit yeah. smaller than average. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's speak to the Lodge. You were in Bristol, right? And then did you move to London for uni, you said? I did, yeah. yeah. Which I grew uni? up in Bristol. I went to King's. Oh, okay. Oh, so did I. What did you yeah. study? Oh, nice. <laughs> I studied French. I did, um, I did war studies. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I never um, knew yeah. you did war studies. Yes, you did. You I mean, I must have done. at some point, but... I remember that. That's in the same building. Mm. Um, yeah, then I, I did go to Goldsmiths after that as well. That was, so I was, did I. <gasps> what did you study there? The s- yeah. <laughs> Cultural studies. So did I. No, come on. Yeah. Yeah, with John Hutnick teaching all of Capital over one term. Mm, yeah, and then um, wow. I guess... The final act of this podcast is like, Chow's been your Tyler Durden all along. <laughs> <laughs> then we go Damn blow that. up the vinyl factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a few years after I left, I think like most of the people who taught me like kind of got done for like sexual harassment. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, good times. <laughs> um, but yes, I started DJing while I was at university and, you know, promoting things here and there. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I guess from there, I also had a blog, you know, it was blog era. Yeah. I was writing about music. I was like making sh- T-shirts and like doing kind of like <laughs> I remember. little bit, bits and bobs of like different kind of cultural music related things. I had um, a zine that I made. Um, yeah, promoting parties. Um, what year are we talking I, here? Like, um, this is like 2012-ish. Am I getting my bearings wrong? No, earlier, earlier, sorry. Tom, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's more like... It was a zine and a blog, Tom. I yeah, sorry. I think it sorry. might have been 2006 or something. Yeah, just yeah it, it, was, it was probably Anything more... Anything over 10 years old is just like a complete like mishmash for me at this point. Okay, yeah. I thought you were going to say something much worse. The no, absolute ice, ice age. Wait, um, what year... Sorry, we're going to have to go over this. What year did you do cultural studies? What, what year did you... Um, I I graduated in 2010. Okay, that's slightly before me, slightly before me. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, so it was like 2008, I suppose, when I was doing that. I got a, like a residency at the Heat Waves Hot Work Night, which was at the Big Chill. Yeah. I don't know if anyone oh, yeah. remembers that. I remember the Big Chill, Chill very well. There's going to be a lot of that um, on this podcast. There's going to be a lot like, of like, oh, I remember that <laughs> yeah, venue. Justice yeah. for camp. <laughs> yeah. And then at that point, I was like mostly playing like, I was playing vinyl and like 45s that I bought. Um, mm. And then I started, uh, then I met like Hipsters Don't Dance. I don't know if you know those mm-hmm. guys. Yeah. Um, they had like a monthly at um, this place off of Old Street that I can't remember the name of now. Um, and then it moved to Shacklewell, Shacklewell Arms. I know the venue um, you mean, and I also can't remember what it's called. Where is it? Yeah, it, it was really weird. It had like glass windows. Wait, no. Is that camp? Or am I thinking of the other one? Yes, it, it yes, is camp. Yes, right, yes, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. camp. Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Same page. It was, <laughs> so that it was them, and then the, they had residents, one of which was me. They had Merlot, um, this other guy called Ilanja. Um, am I forgetting someone? I'm not sure. But yes, I, I did that like every month. Actually, to be honest, they were kind of like early on a lot of stuff. They were like playing all the kind of like Nigerian and like African stuff before kind of anybody knew what that was. Um, But it was a great party. You could kind of play whatever you wanted and the crowd would trust that you might be playing like Baltimore Club or like Funky or Grime or or Dancehall. Um, But yeah, that was that was like the early days of, of my DJing back then. Um, playing those monthlies and then I moved to New York in 2013 Um, so did you move to New York if I'm getting my timeline right so you were already doing stuff with Mixpack right because there was the blog yeah so like I was living in London and like DJing and doing all this stuff and then I think like I Mixpack had like maybe had one record out at the time. It was like this Dre Skull and Sizzler record. Um, but they also had a blog. And so I felt very kind of like sonically like interested in, in it. And like we had a lot in common. So I just kind of hit hit Dre, Dre Skull, the producer and like owner of Mixpack. I hit him up and we just started talking. And then I started editing the blog um, like bringing on other writers and like building that out. And then that kind of like morphed into label work. Um, and I did that from London for a short while. I had like a hot desk in the same place that NTS had their office, like on Kingsland Road, like upstairs from uh, the Alibi. And Alex Nutt had a desk in there and some other rinse DJs as well. Um, but then like in 2012, I guess... You know, PubCon signed like a multi-album deal. So at that point it was like, okay, cool. <laughs> like maybe time to like take things seriously. And so I moved to New York and we set up a studio and I started like working on the label full time from there. But then bring us up to date. What what do you do right now? So right now, um, I mean, I operate like independently, um, still working with artists and and I work with like brands on strategy and, and marketing. Like sometimes I'm working with like Amazon Music or Red Bull. Um, but then I'm also like in the weeds with like a new artist who's like trying to develop and like get their first EP out or something. So kind of in and out of different teams, um, freelance essentially. So 
you know, I spent some months of this year working with OVO. Um, I also did a period working with like Jimmy Iovine's skate rink, flippers. Um, they, they have one of those over here as well. So I've been doing that. Um, I've been working with this Jamaican artist called Skeng. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, broadly speaking, I'm doing like kind of marketing in the music space. Um, but that can mean different things and, you know. So I wanted to ask, I guess this is quite an open question, but my question is, why is it dancehall? Like, what is the thing that has brought you to dancehall more more often than maybe any other genre? Is there a sort of epiphany moment behind it? I think it's just kind of like where life took me. <laughs> I don't know. I like... I don't just like dancehall. I'm like super interested in so many things. And I've been involved in a lot of different genres over the years. But I think obviously because of like the most success that I've had has been with dancehall acts is that's like where people lean the most, um, which makes a lot of sense. And I, I do love it and have collected dancehall records for a long time. Um, I think to be honest, like I attribute pretty much all of my musical history to growing up in Bristol. Right, okay. Um, so what sort of things like, were you doing as a, as a kid, as a teenager? Or I mean, like, honestly, just, like, listening to things like Massive Attack and Porter's Head, like, as a kid, that, that had, like, a huge impact on me. I started, like, digging into the samples. You know, that's probably how I would discover something like Isaac Hayes. Or like Horace Andy, I got like big into that and that set me off into like a whole rabbit hole of like buying reggae. So I think like, yeah, to be honest, like Massive Attack and Bristol, that's like the gateway drug for me. Like it incorporated like hip hop and soul and reggae and like post-punk and stuff. And then also things like, I don't know, soul to soul or like cold cut, like that kind of thing. Um, there was also like Ronnie size and crust and like full cycle and all of that kind of jungle and, and drum and bass stuff. Um, and that was just like, you couldn't really avoid that yeah. if you were living in Bristol, like <laughs> there were f free festivals, like there was this thing called Ashton Court Festival that doesn't happen anymore, but it was probably like Europe's biggest free festival. And like, I got to see Portishead playing there for free. Um, but all of that kind of like the record stores, like there's there were a crazy amount of like record stores with people who worked there who I think were just like super influential. Like you'd go in and just get their recommendations. Um, yeah, so like the, the record stores, the festivals, the clubs. I don't I don't know what it is about Bristol, but there's something kind of like in the water there that makes it like an extremely creative place and also that's like a heavy Jamaican population compared to a lot of places in the UK maybe like 10% or something so I don't know you're very like aware of like reggae and dance hall and sound systems like there's St Paul's Carnival and things like that um it's just kind of in the air you know yeah. mm -hmm. but obviously not everybody <laughs> kind of gets obsessed with it in the way that I did but um yeah that's I think that's what I attribute a lot of my musical interest to. Where did the name come from? The large, uh, the not name... Shimmy Shimmy. I know where sh I can oh, figure yeah. out where Shimmy Shimmy <laughs> okay, comes from. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, that's actually a nickname that I've had from when I was a teenager. Um, a friend of mine's little sister gave it to me when we were like a, a group of friends just kind of sitting around in the living room and her sister was like going around saying to each of us what we were in the group, like, um, you're the funnest you're the tallest and then she got to me and she was going to say you're the largest but she realized like mid-sentence that I wasn't and so she just stopped and said you're the large (laughs) and then they just started calling me the large I was like 16 or 17 that's great um so yeah, and my friends from that age, they call me large and a lot of people call just call I, me large. I would say from the visual accompaniment I've got, you don't seem in any way large. Yeah, you seem Susie's completely not normal, that large. Shaped inside, so, you know, not that that would matter, but just for fact checking. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I went back and, um, and watched when you played our Keep Hush, whenever that was, like four or five years ago. And one of the oh comments is just like, she doesn't seem that large. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's more yeah, like fair. a that sort large. of uh, <laughs> little John scenario. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Are you short? Um, I am quite short. Yeah. Mm, okay, maybe it's that then. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely that diminutive. Let's say. No. Yeah. Yeah, the diminutive the doesn't quite have the same sort of DJ. Dimmy, <laughs> dimmy. No. It, yeah. D- yeah, it's nice. That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a pretty dumb name, to be honest, but, um, you know, it's a DJ name. Sometimes I, uh, I've i thought over the years, like, this is a good name, and then every now and again I'm like, hey, someone with the name Rob Dabank was on the BBC. Exactly. So it's yeah, all good, exactly. it's all good. <laughs> and then, like, a few years ago, um, Total Freedom sent out a tweet that was like, I think The Large is a really good DJ name. Oh, wow. Oh, look at that. And I was okay. like, I felt so vindicated. Yeah, that's all the validation like, what? I need. I um, mean, it's not a good idea to pick anything that is not Googleable. but... Um, well, yours isn't that this... Googleable. No. No, it's terrible. No. It's, a- it's absolutely not Googleable. but... Um... I just feel like if Dave can do it, we all can. Like... <laughs> yeah. That's my attorney. Yeah, but he was Santander, though. Yeah, he was. Mm. And he was he very almost changed his name to Santander just before what, it blew like up. Like Deedpole? What do you mean? No, no, it's in like he was like, <laughs> I'm going to go. Because his name was never Santander on records. It was always Dave. Oh, right. But Santan was like his username on Star. Oh, I don't And he was going to okay. put out the records as Santander. And then I think just went whoosh. And it was like, oh, it's fine now. You've. Now I'm the only Dave. Yeah. yeah. You, you appeared in the SEO over, I don't know, Dave. Benson Phillips. Yeah, right. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> That's music festival, the, so. the top Dave that came to mind was Benson Phillips. Yeah, as you can tell, I've been to Bangkok, you know. Yeah. I started <laughs> yeah. blanking. I just couldn't think of a single Dave. Well, you do think it was just one of those ones that was like completely revealing your age with one yeah. word like, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, that would be the popular, David popular TV presenter, <laughs> Dave Benson Phillips, isn't it? Um, hey, can you remember the first blog post that you wrote for the Mixpack Mixpack? blog do you know who, what it was i can't remember um did you pitch things or did you just say hi i've got a blog and then they kind of like rolled you into what, what they were doing um i probably did pitch things in the beginning and then didn't but we we did some interviews i remember there being like a nguzu nguzu interview um i interviewed om unit at one point it was like all different stuff and some of it was just like um you know it was in that great era where you would just kind of put up an mp3 and people would download that that yeah um (laughs) yeah like hype machine yeah kind of time um 
it was it was fun and I made a lot of friends through that period as well um just from like being on the blogs yeah I wanted to ask about this era actually because I I don't know it's something I think about a lot actually about how I think a lot of people loosely of our generation made a lot of their friends a lot of their connections and like developed a lot of their musical taste through blogs and like there's this really interesting it's this really interesting historical moment that I think is I mean, look, I tried to find Shimmy Shimmy and it's not online anymore. Like, I Thank think, God. Well, I, but I think, it's, I think that's sad in a way. I think this whole era, which it is, is really important, is... Right, okay. I'm I actually didn't know what Wayback Machine was until you <gasps> pointed out in the notes. Oh, my God. But all this stuff is like one, you know, it, it does, miss it, one unpaid, like, hosting charge yeah, away from, from disappearing. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think, like, it's a real... I don't know. I, I fear for that era because I think it's super important and I think it's in danger of kind of being historically wiped out just because of how online it is. Totally. And I think, like, you know, maybe this, like, skips forward to something that you want to talk about at a different point in the convo, but, like, the death of the press and all of that and, and what worth do it does, like, having these things on the internet have outside of just being part of... Um, you know, someone's rollout strategy. Mm. Like, I think there's so much worth in things that, like, don't necessarily move the needle, but are, like, you know, part of a really important archive or, like, discovery platform Massively. for people. Or just, like, you know, documenting, like, cultural moments. I think we miss out on on a lot of that if that those things disappear. I don't know, like someone like Blackdown or like mm. those kinds of blogs that would really be like doing like extensive writing and then like making a mix mm -hmm. about that scene that they were sort of like looking at. Um, does that exist anymore? I doubt it. Well, and even if it does exist on Discord, that's then a private conversation. You know, that's you can't just Google it. You can't find out later. And I think that's yeah. part of yeah. the sadness of all of these sort of blogspot uh blogs disappearing is that is that then if you go to look up something that you remember reading at the time and that's gone and it's just mm. a real kind of erasure of a lot of people's um hard work basically yeah and i mean like it's funny you bring up blackdown's blog because i think about it quite a lot because it's like there's only like two burial one to use online ever and one of them is there i don't about there's only about That's the other one uh, fact. Yes. Um, but there's only there's only ever been like three or maybe even two like in depth like loafer interviews, and one of them's on Blackdown's blog. And it's like someone like loafer is like an important historical figure, and you know mm. the evolution of UK dance music. And it's kind of wild that you can only find interviews with him on like one person blogs. But that's all we're trying to change with this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Insert advert. Here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, you, we mentioned Popcam briefly there, but you got to New York and were you saying that he was signed to Mixpack kind of around that time? Signed a, like a multi-album deal around that time? So you were working on his record immediately? Yeah, his first record. I mean, we had some, we put out some singles um, and then we put out his first album that ended up coming out in 2014. Mm. Um yeah, I mean, even at that time, I think, like, he was known, but, like, only within certain circles. You know, if you knew about Jamaican music, maybe you knew about, um, like, the Clarks track with the Vibes Cartel. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, Only Man She Want had come out at that point. But mm. that was basically it, and he hadn't put an album out. And, 
you know, albums weren't really like the thing in dancehall. They're not kind of considered as being sort of like an important thing so much as singles are. But he really wanted to like make a statement. Um, and it was sort of like part of the way that we wanted to help him grow was to kind of like make these cultural statements that felt like he was you know like an artist of his generation and like an important figure and to be honest like it's it it was and is still hard to get people to pay attention if you don't kind of pander to the album cycle so like there's part of that too that's just like cool how do you get people to like how do you get entry into that world you know which is like quite western focused and america focused without doing some of that stuff and to be honest it's pretty hard and so there was that element to it too i think of just like this is how this is how you make a statement as an act this is how you tour this is how you grow this is how you get reviews this is how you build um and this is how you you know make music that fans want to hear that aren't just singles as well it kind of allows you to do um interesting stuff that doesn't just cater to what's going to go off in the in the dance you know um so there was a lot of thinking around like why he wanted to do an album um and yeah at the time it was it was hard to like promote some of that stuff you know you couldn't get well this is even like pre spotify and things being like a big deal but those platform platforms weren't even available in Jamaica or like any of that diaspora oh, right, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> for years I mean yeah. it, I think what was that two years ago now or something that they've become available so it was really like you had to kind of pound the pavement to get gatekeepers interested in things that didn't have the numbers behind them to like back it up because we knew and a lot of other people knew that like this is culturally a very important thing but you couldn't see it in the data and that's like what a lot of these people are looking for and I think that's true to this day really like in the way that A&Rs operate and stuff it's just like they're just looking at numbers and it's like you know there's a lot of other stuff that plays into why someone is like culturally important and we knew that and I guess like that helped us um to you know grow him in that way what were some of like the highlights of working on that campaign like particular stuff that stands out on that first album? Mm-hmm. Or I mean in general, to be fair. I guess Culture Clash is probably a very obvious one. but Culture Clash is a big one. Yeah, yeah I mean, I feel, I feel like there was a sort of almost an obvious before and after effect. I think 2016 was like a huge moment, um, partly because of Culture Clash, but also because of like just what was going on at co- in culture at the time. Like... Rihanna work had come out. Mm. Drake one dance had come out. You know, Wizkid was on that. Um, it was just kind of like a more understanding of like, okay, some of these like dance hall and like Afro records like moving into the mainstream in a different way. Um, and so there was a point where, like, I, mem- I remember when I was working at Mixed back in the early days, you know, people would be like, oh, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, work for a label. Oh, who, what bands have you got? Oh, well, the, you know, this, the, I worked with this artist called Popcorn. They'd be like, oh, I've never heard of that. And then yeah. at a certain point, people would be like, oh, yeah, 
I know who he is, you know what I mean? And and that I feel like that happened at some point around 2016, um, just because of the way kind of culture was moving. And then, yeah, Culture Clash did uh, have a big impact on on Mixpack as a as a label and a name for sure. Yeah, tell us about that a little bit. Because also, from what I understand, you were super integral to it like sourcing and organizing the dubs and all that stuff we should say what culture clash is um yeah for people who don't know culture clash was an annual sound system event organized by red bull um that happened across the world it definitely happened in the u.s I, and i think I feel like it still revealed. exists right but just not in the uk so so it's a sound clash so yeah. there are multiple crews uh competing to to be the best sound yeah and the people. one we're referencing was in london in what year was it 2016. 2016. 2016. Yeah. And the teams were Eskimo Dance, a UKG All-Stars team, and Wiz Khalifa's Taylor Gang and Mixpack. And Mixpack won. Which was like yeah. not necessarily expected, right? That was considered. I called it. A big I would deal. like to say, as someone who was there, I called it. I was talking about it with Marvin, Marvin Sparks, and I said, they will win because they get the culture and they will have access to some really great dubs. And yes. understand how to play it. And I wasn't sure anyone else was necessarily going to have that. So I felt very vindicated, but also very happy. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Appreciate the support. Yeah. No, we were, definitely, we were definitely the underdogs. And also they called us about five weeks before it happened. Or really? Something. Like an in- insanely short amount of time. Someone mm-hmm. else dropped out. I forget who. <gasps> I no that. way. I may not be able to remember slash I probably shouldn't say even if I do, but somebody dropped out and we got pulled in. And um, we, I remember like getting that call. Well, it wasn't me who took the call, but the call happening and being like, oh my God, I guess we have to do this and just like put everything else like basically on pause. And it was kind of like a full, full on like five weeks of preparing um, like the amount of dub plates. I think we got like, I mean, we had like hundreds by the end. Like most of them, we didn't even use. Um, and yeah, it was. I mean, Cerisi. I don't know if you know him. He was um, the MC that uh, hosted the show. Who's an amazing all-round guy. But um, I worked with him on like collecting the dub plates, um, and that was just like an intense amount of work um, chasing that stuff. Um, and then you know we had to book the special guests. Um, we broke Jay Huss out of jail. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, we got Big Nasty to come out in a wig and, like, no one knew who he was and then he <laughs> took off his wig. We what, got it was, these... sorry, it, was, it was somehow a wig that disguised who Big Nasty was and he walked on stage. <laughs> yeah. Like... yeah, he was, he was completely unrecognisable in dreads. <laughs> <laughs> who could this possibly be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shh. Yeah. Um, who else did you have? We got um we had sneak sneak bow, we had spice, uh we had cranium. Um yeah, and then we had these coffins that I'd hired from like a stage company come out that said like the other team's names on it. That's serious. And, um, that is that's yeah, taking it. It was it was really fun and we, we got a video made for that coffins. bit. <laughs> Dude, those coffins, unfortunately, um, 
had people. They weren't miss. They weren't missing. No, oh. I was going to ask if you still got the coffins. No, why would no, you they still have the coffins? What, could... I didn't buy them. <laughs> yeah, oh, fair. Yeah, yeah. Flew yeah. them back yeah. to New oh, York for decorative. That's purposes. actually quite a good idea, though. Can like, you imagine just, just kind of on, kept on it on wall. hold? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like bury me in the Sound Clash coffin. Like that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should like have thought of that, but no, we crazy, rented uh, them. African coffins that you see, you know, like in West Africa, oh, I love particularly those. where they have those, like, be like a little race car as your coffin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like bury me in the Fanta bottle yeah. coffin or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, they got they got lost. I have no idea what happened. We rented them from like, um, you know, a place where like productions rent, yeah. like theatrical stuff. Um, and yeah, at the end of the night, they came to pick them up and they'd gone. <laughs> It's um, quite a big thing to lose, like free coffins. Yeah. Yeah, like how do you walk out of somewhere yeah. with a coffin and no one's like, So um, did you lose your me? deposit on the coffins? Oh, yeah, like Damn. thousands of dollars. Damn. Worth it. But we'd won, so we yeah, were like, yeah. who cares, man? Like I'm off to the VIP with David Rodigan. Like I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> how it, did, it was worth it. How did that win sort of change or, or, or affect Mixpack for the next like sort of months or, or year or so after that then? I think it affected it, I mean, a lot. I think just like name recognition was massive. Like I think over a million people watched that. Mm. Um, it was the only thing to have got live streamed on the BBC, was it on the BBC or something? I think it was, um, it was definitely on like iPlayer at least, like it was... It was streamed live, I think. Yeah, like it had a huge yeah. audience and there were like 25,000 people in person, but like millions of people watched it. And I think at that point, you know, in the UK especially, that just did like so much for name recognition. Um, and that helped a lot. And it was great because that meant like, you know, we had more to talk about for our, our artists. It, it helped us to kind of like approach people and be like, hey, we're this. Um but, you know, we did definitely, like, we did other stuff that wasn't dancehall, and I think to an extent that, um, you know, kind of boxed us in further than we mm. perhaps wanted to. But, um, you know, that's fine. It was, it is what it is. But, yeah, I don't, I, I think, like, it wasn't clear to us necessarily that we were going to win. Like, I was super confident in what we were going to get, like, dubs-wise and stuff, because we had a all of the links like we yeah. knew all of these people and we knew who to get and we knew what was like the kind of authentic thing to get and also like I think I helped a lot and Cerisy helped a lot with like what's going to go off on the UK crowd because mm -hmm. uh, you know perhaps the Americans might not know that in the same way and um yeah I mean it's it's like those those big rooms, like a room full of twenty five thousand people. Like dancehall's like not really primed for that. It's not mm. that kind of music, you know. Like I thought, this is really like. It sort of privileges people who are into like drum and bass or, um, you know, really heavy kind of sounds, um, and that's why like EDM festivals are the way they are and certain yeah. music doesn't kind of get that kind of stage because it just sonically doesn't work. Well, like, I think Chase and Status had won it the year before, right? Hmm. Which Yeah, I mean, well, exactly, because like you're just looking for, understandably looking for these like huge builds and drops mm. and just um, moments you can kind of like go off in the crowd and those don't really exist in 
in dancehall in the same way. It's like just a different a different sound. So it wasn't like fully clear that we were going to be able to win off of the back of the dancehall stuff alone. So we had to like be really careful to like build in the drum and bass dubs and like the the heavier <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, obviously, the big nasty stuff was like kind of more dubstepy. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, you know the Drake dub. We actually had we had something else planned, but um, the Drake dub came in kind of last minute. So Mixpack was also, I mean, in this exact time period that we're talking about, was definitely one of the labels that we were covering a lot on Fact. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a pr- prime era for Fact as well, probably just in terms of like the sort of breadth and depth of the coverage, I think. And uh, yeah, I guess we were sort of thinking, especially as you are a, a writer as well and have blogged. Um, and still do. And still do. Um, and yeah. we just wonder what your kind of relationship is with, with music press now. Obviously, it's changed a lot, but how does it kind of fit into your, your picture of the industry now? Um, and do you actually read very much of it? <laughs> well, I I think like I'm probably an outlier because yes I do and I still think it's really valuable but as I was saying earlier I think like it's it's valuable in ways that aren't just around like a press cycle for an act um but like in terms of working with an artist like do I think that that's gonna move the needle anymore like probably not um like are people actually gonna go and listen to your record because you got a feature in you know even the New York Times or something like I I don't know that it probably doesn't but it does give you like a sort of cultural cosign that I think is still pretty important if you get the right things I still you know you still need press to like get a visa you still yeah. need press for people to understand I mean I've I've experienced this even in my own career like people don't like really get what you're doing and then like I did a mix for BBC and then they're like, oh, okay, cool. You know, like (laughs) someone else thinks you're like good enough to like be in the Guardian or um, like the New York Times or something. Then that's kind of like a, uh aha, like I can take this seriously kind of moment. Mm. And I still think that is important for for artists. I think Um, that's a classic British parents move as well. The minute they see what you're doing on the BBC or the Guardian, they're like, oh, okay, (laughs) that's fine. That's allowed to be a career. Once I'd had a Guardian feature, I think my auntie was like, oh, lovely, wonderful, great. (laughs) Um, As somebody who's worked with like a lot of dancehall artists, um, do you think dancehall's, well, I guess I I was going to ask historically, but I guess it still applies. Do you think dancehall is misrepresented by press in the UK and the US? I'm going to say underrepresented, misrepresented. I mean, I guess it depends what you mean. Do you mean like it? But like, how do you mean? I guess I was I was actually having this conversation with with Marvin Sparks recently. We were chatting about it because we were chatting about his book, and um, he was talking about. Well, he was first talking about how hard he'd found it um, as a journalist focusing on Jamaican music, trying to have like pictures accepted and stuff like that. And I think he's like crunched the numbers as well to like really back this up in terms of the underrepresentation of it. But then I also do wonder if it's misrepresented in certain ways because, and this kind of goes back to something you were saying earlier, the way press has historically canonized modern music is so album focused. 
And yeah. I think press has historically found it harder to properly represent dancehall and properly canonize dancehall because it's, you can't tie it into a handful of albums, right? Like you yeah. can loosely tie, I don't know, whatever, a decade of post-punk into like 10 essential albums and it is this like bite-sized thing that Guardian readers or whatever can be like, okay, cool, I can I can absorb this. Whereas just because it's so single driven and more than that obviously it's like the evolution of like certain rhythms and it's just it just can't be tied down to that i think that you know jamaican music has like a an oversized um impact on pop music especially in the uk and to the us i mean definitely to an extent but perhaps not as much as in the uk but it like has such a huge impact but hasn't really like I don't really know what having its dues would mean but it hasn't really had that and it hasn't allowed for a lot of people to to come through but at the same time perhaps that's just because of you know who those artists were and timing and and things but um yeah I think like it's definitely personally in my experience been a challenge to overcome what I think is probably snobbery but I'm not entirely sure I think it's just like a fundamental kind of like outside of people's culture who are working in who are like the gatekeepers um they don't they don't understand or they don't care for that kind of music um it doesn't make sense to them and and to be fair like some of it is complicated like rhythm culture is like not something that most people would perhaps naturally understand, you know. And so you do have to have, like, quite a knowledge of it to kind of get there. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore, really. Like, contemporary dance hall does not, doesn't use rhythm culture, but in the past, I'm talking about, there's not really been a foundation of that to build upon for these new acts. Um, but, yeah, I think there's... You know, a lot of the most interesting music out there right now are things that are, like, not being covered, in my mind. Like, outside of dancehall, anyway, like, a lot of music that's kind of outside of the traditional, like, UK, US conversation. And to an extent, that's always been the case. But at this point, it's, like, the biggest music in the world is, like, Latin music or regional Mexican music or Afrobeats or K-pop and... uh I don't know, like, where do you go to, like, find out about that stuff? Maybe I'm just, like, not tapped in, but it feels like it's all underrepresented in a way. Um, and dancehall's, like, a sliver of that, you know, it's a smaller... It's a much smaller um, slice of that pie because there are only three million people living in Jamaica compared to, you know, the population of Latin America. It's quite... We thought we should at least briefly touch on the biggest music news of the past week or so which is that uh well i don't know exactly when this episode will come out but in the last week or so bandcamp uh which was owned by epic games has been sold to song trade and uh 50 of its staff have been laid off uh and i guess we just wanted to know what your kind of instinctive thoughts on this situation <laughs> yeah i mean it's a bummer isn't it um it's always a bummer when sort of big money interest comes in the way. Um, 
I'm very pro Bandcamp. I think like I spend a lot of time and money on there. Um, that's where I find a lot of music these days. Um, so it will be a huge loss, I think, if that goes. At the same time, I do think that there is space for a new model. I don't know if Bandcamp is the best model out there. Um, sometimes I think taking 15% plus the extra fees on top is a lot. Yeah. And like perhaps there will be something more along the lines of like a distro kid that would be like a flat fee model that could emerge that would, um, you know, would feel better. Um, so, I mean, psychologically, I understand that it's easier for people to like give away a percent than a flat fee because you're like, you don't have to pay to play. Um, and I don't know the true economics behind it, but I do think that like perhaps something else will rise from the ashes and it'll be better. I mean, I know Mix, Mixpack had, you had your own DTC store, which always seemed pretty prominent. Like, um... Yeah, I mean, we definitely wanted to have DTC like from the beginning and like very kind of like carefully wanted to own yeah uh not only the channel but like the relationships with people like just even things like getting their email addresses because that's a lot of the problem and this is a problem with like major labels working with artists too is like you don't own your data and yeah. then when they go you're like oh my god my audience was actually owned by someone else um and so that's something i definitely will always like advocate for with artists is like if you can build your own channels like that's the best thing to do because you're not going to be beholden to anything happening like this um which does happen all yeah. the time so do you find stuff like the kind of landmark spotify playlists are having less impact than they were yes right okay big time I mean, so I think like there are a couple of them that will always have impact. Like, you know, if you get on New Music Friday or something, yeah. that will give you a big jump probably. Um, but yeah, I actually don't think playlisting is very impactful these days. Um, and certainly isn't like a strategy. Yeah. Why, you do you, why do you think that is? Just less on the strategy side, more in terms of like, the pure popularity of these playlists i'm not sure i mean i think like if i think about my own personal usage it's just like i'm not checking those playlists all the time like i can't picture that there are people who are like cool i'm listening to pollen like well maybe they are listening to it i mean pollen is probably like the wrong example but um, cause that's actually kind of a niche playlist in some ways, but, um, yeah, I just wonder if, if people are like going to these editorialized playlists in the same way that they were five years ago, like checking them all the time. Like for instance, like you go on Spotify, it doesn't even tell you that the playlist has been updated, you know, like there's no way of being like, Oh cool. New stuff. Like it's not really geared towards that in some ways um my, my feeling is always i can't i just can't tell whether that means that people have gone somewhere else or if people just aren't 
listening to music as much, bottom line. Like sometimes I feel it's the latter, that there are just like perhaps, you know, younger sort of generations that haven't been onboarded in the same way and just aren't looking for new music like that, which just makes me feel just old and out of touch or whatever. But I just, I just feel like I don't think that it's simply that people have gone somewhere else to look for something. I also think it's like a habit that's sort of fading out somehow. I agree. I don't think music discovery is like top of the list for a young person. Mm. It's like, a, um, you know, furniture in the room sort of <laughs> situation. It's mm. just like it's there. But um, I don't know if they're like going going looking for things in the same way. Um, yeah. What, what are your yeah. insights on this then from from work? Because I'm just constantly curious about what I would be listening to or finding if I was say 15 16 17 now like I, I really can't tell what I would be doing like what apps I'd be using I just can't quite work it out where do you think they all are I don't mean kind of in general I mean like ones that actually care as well like is there a you know is there an is there a stream of dedicated younger fans I think there definitely are I mean if you look on TikTok there are still like music nerds who are like kind of digging for stuff and mm. doing things that we probably would have done when we were younger too I think there'll always be people like that but those are the ones who are like the outliers um but like yeah for the mainstream kind of audience I think it's music just doesn't have the same influence as it did 20 years ago or perhaps even 10 years ago and it's not something that's sort of like culturally as impactful anymore and that's like painful to to admit but i think it's true i think like gaming is like more important yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was just gonna say i think i think gaming and to a lesser extent like netflix and streaming tv <laughs> it's probably just like yeah. a big part of like what people are doing on their device at home and what people have on around the home has just changed so much i, I have yeah. a sort of theory about like the fact that for you know many decades one of the things that music can do for you as a young person is help give you a sense of identity so that you can both express yourself individually, stand apart from your 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 family or your peers, and also join a tribe that, you know, kind of accepts you. And, and it's this kind of subcultural, you know, form of early, like, expression. And people sometimes, like bop about between scenes and they're younger and they wear different clothes and and that that also can be part of shaping their like political subjectivity and so many other things that are really like you know help you to generate a personality and uh I think that that's the bit that's that's kind of not happening anymore it's like I don't think that kids turn to music as a form of finding their own identity so much I think there are other other avenues for that a little bit perfect yeah yeah definitely and I think music is like sort of like or the recorded part of music feels like a marketing play for the the like larger brand of like <laughs> mm. the artist as influencer do you yeah, know what I mean yeah. like like you're doing all of these things and music is one of them but it doesn't really matter if that music is this or that you know that people are sort of like buying into personalities mm-hmm. um I think that's to an extent, like, been true for a while, but seems, like, more pronounced now. Yeah. yeah. What do you think the role of an independent record label is in 2023? <laughs> Ooh. Um, I thought I should have yeah. asked that an hour ago. Yeah. I'm a bit fresher. 
Well, I think the kind of like cult label thing that was big when when I was growing up, um, that's disappeared mm. or disappearing, I guess. I, I'm not sure people care about that too much anymore. Like when I first moved out here, it was definitely like, you know, labels were kind of driving culture and you would go to like fool's gold night or, you know, yeah, or a mixed pack party or like these things or, I mean, it's not exactly a label, but ghetto gothic or something like that. Um, but now like, I think the consumer is like not paying attention to that and the subculture kind of vibe of like affiliating yourself with something like a label that doesn't seem to be vibrant at all or like closer to non-existent but but I still think they're very important and perhaps more important because in terms of the actual work that you're doing you know boutique labels or small independent labels I think are like super needed because it's so hard to to break through and there's so much out there and so much to do like for an act as I'm sure you know Tom you know it's just like an insane amount of stuff to do yeah. and so like you do kind of need other people to help you and if you don't have like a really sturdy management team you're going to need a label as well or but you know yeah both um and it really helps to have a cosign and it helps to have some cash and it helps to have, you know, people who, who know what they're doing. Um, so I still think like independent labels are really important. And as we were talking about like cur- curation wise, I think like that still is something people are looking for. What's actually making you feel good about music right now? What are the inspiring themes that you're looking to? Actually, right now, it's quite exciting in a lot of ways because there was, and I spoke about this in a recent newsletter of mine, which is like there, there is space for different kinds of music to come through and is reaching the top in a way that hasn't really been seen before or like understood before anyway. And so, you know, rap is kind of like on the wane in some ways. And so, um, no, not that it's gone in any sense of the word, but it's, it's thriving in a lot of like, you know, regional ways. But in terms of commercially, like now, like reggaeton is huge. Like Bad Bunny is like the biggest artist in the world. Um, like Burner Boy is massive. Like all like this K-pop, like Garage song being like the biggest song in the world. Like all of this stuff I find to be exciting because for so long it's been like, a conversation dominated by kind of the US and the UK and it feels like that's not what's happening right now um, and I find that to be interesting um, so I, I like seeing that and I, I like Bad Bunny and I like a lot of the stuff that's like at the top right now and so I'm interested to see where that goes. We spoke to uh, Nick and Tony from Sorry Records the other week and we had a good chat about the state of New York scene in general um, uh, and as someone who's been there for exactly 10 years maybe it would just be nice to know what you think is going on in New York right now like how does it feel as a music city um, 
honestly, like, it's insane. There's, like, so much going on uh, every night. Well, not every night, but, like, you know, on the weekend, it's, like, it, there's a lot of stuff to pick from, um, which has its pros and cons. Like, you know, it's it's annoying to be, like, oh, my God, there's fade to mind whatever anniversary parties on the same night that I'm DJing or whatever um but now there's like all of these venues lots of different types of venues big and small um it does seem quite vibrant and there are a lot of like New York native DJs who are crushing it and around a lot and um you can see them out there um so I'm enjoying that I think a lot of the stuff that I like is like stuff that's like very community minded things with like very good vibes like soul summit i don't know if you've heard of that um they do that in the park um in fort green like in the summer but then they also dj around um different places um or like something like the loft which has obviously been going for a million years but um those things that are very like cross generational um I like a lot of those parties that felt quite different from stuff that I'd experienced in the UK. Maybe that's just the things that I was going to, but um, I like that vibe. And I also like when they have like they have food, and, like, <laughs> totally ch- chill out area. And there's like yeah. there's kids there, and there's old people there, and like it's it's good vibes. Like no one's aggy. There's nothing like no one's like really messed up like mm. it's just kind of like good times so nick said the I same thing actually things, he yeah. was like i've had a revelation where all the best parties have children food and the elderly really yeah that's a good party to me now i think i guess he he meant the loft then yeah, maybe yeah. yeah and something yeah i don't know and balloons <laughs> yeah, yeah. And balloons, of course yeah yeah we had balloons when you played that keep hush because it was the local action 8th birthday of course which i'd forgotten about yeah till watching the video and there's people throwing balloons at you while you're playing oh i don't i don't remember that it was probably in yeah it's giving in yay <laughs> but yeah i don't i mean i definitely enjoy going to like more interesting like club experiences that aren't just kind of like going to the brooklyn barrage or something like i'm not really that's not really my kind of thing and i like a smaller like intimate space most of the time Low ceiling kind of vibe, like dark basement or something. Yeah. Brooklyn Mirage uh, has no ceiling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, my nightmare. There's loads of like cool other other spots, and like I, I love nowadays. And, uh, my friend Andrew runs this party called Groovy Groovy. Mm. Um, that's like runs till I don't know 10 a.m. or something, and it's like very cool. Um, I just played like a. 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. set oh, wow. uh, last so. month, which <laughs> was insane, but also very fun. It's great that that kind of music can be so, you know, just done well in the middle of New York. I, I was saying to Nick and Tony when we spoke to them that the first time I ever went there, there was just there was no music like that that I can remember. I mean, I was only there for a week, but you know, the, that type of, um, particularly how how a lot of DJs are playing kind of not house and techno in various ways and just really brought all that in. It's, it seems to kind of work really well in, in, in the way that it should in New York, but I think maybe it, it hasn't always been the case, you know, that you can play a, a, a sort of mixed set of kind of global um, broken rhythms and stuff like that. Well, and you can play yeah. it at 6am. Yeah. Like, I feel like in London, 
you can only really play techno at 6am because everyone just is so drunk at that point. Mm. Whereas I think that's the difference. Course. People don't really drink yeah. as much. Mm. Or in this corner of the club scene anyway, it's more like psychedelics and stuff. So you're not really dealing with kind of like people being absolutely smashed. That was the main thing the first time I went to nowadays. And I went at like 4am and I was just like, I can't believe people are this sober here. Like in a good way. Like it was really refreshing, but it was so nice. I mean, I don't think they're sober. Sorry, but as in they're not just sloppy and drunk. Like it was so nice to be in that kind of space at 5am and it's not just drunk people stumbling around. Yeah, it's ketamine people stumbling around. No. Yeah, I think it does make a lot of difference, though. I mean, I admittedly haven't been out clubbing that much in London recently, so I don't know what it's like, but um, it's very, yeah, it does feel kind of like a different vibe. So we have decided that we're going to always ask people for a film recommendation. This is because I recently joined Letterboxd. and just it turns out sometimes when you ask music people about films, you just crack into a whole new area. So what should we watch on the small screen? A film that I've watched many, many times and love is with Nell and I. And I would recommend that to anyone it's to a watch before film. they yeah. die. It's a beautiful film. It has to be simply the most easily quotable film. Every single line Every line is in my head somewhere. I mean, it's up there. It just, yeah, I've, I've, I think it's the film I've seen most actually in my life. Yeah, it could be mine as well. Maybe they, maybe they like forced us to watch it. Goldsmith. Yeah, I was going to say it's a bit weird. Have you ever been to the? Have you ever been to the annual the uh, annual get together thing that they do up in? Where is it again? Pen, oh, what? Pen, where they go pen, on holiday? Yeah, I want to say Penarth. By mistake. But, yeah, it's not Pen. Anyway, in Cumbria, wherever it is. Oh, I didn't know that was and a thing. And you can go to the, good. yeah, my friends have been a couple of times and you go and they screen it and everyone gets very drunk, of course, and you camp and I, I can't really imagine what else. It sounds great. Come up and smiling on Tuesday, presumably. absolutely wasted, yeah. probably. Yeah. I've been enjoying, like, Richard E's resurgence in the last couple of oh, years. Oh, his, you know, his, seemed... he's gripped by sort of beatific joy at all times isn't he he always does these little light to camera videos about how grateful he is to be on earth and stuff really i yeah. missed all this <gasps> he's brilliant his wife died terribly 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 sad but he's just seized the fucking day about it and it's just this right. like just f- faucet of yeah joy nice yeah man, good for him man he was in that he was in some movie a few years ago that was really good i forget what it was called it was filmed in new york um but yeah i mean he's He's made amends for Spice World at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Another movie you should definitely watch. Yeah, That's what yeah, I was going to say. Is yeah, anyone, yeah. anyone going to pick that? You know, spice up your life. Exactly. Spice up your pod. Um, <laughs> so, on that note, yeah. thanks, Suze. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. Very illuminating. I think we've actually... Yeah, it was honestly super, super, super Fulfills the brief. I really, really enjoyed it. We're chronicling things that maybe just don't get written down, although you do have a newsletter. So, Sound and Vision, please subscribe. Mm -hmm.